April 14, 2001. History in the making. Nearly two years after the U.S. captured the 1999 Women's World Cup, those same players, along with the top international stars and emerging U.S. talent, launched the first Women's Professional Soccer League. Eight teams, 184 players, 32 international greats, representing 14 countries, one dream. RFK Stadium, home of the WUSA's inaugural game, shook with 34,000 fans. From the emotional pregame ceremony, through the battle of Mia versus Brandy, the Bay Area Cyberays and the Washington Freedom set the stage for a season of firsts and a season of history in the making. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, gang. What's new? What's shaking? What's cooking? What's baking? How you doing, friends? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, uh, and I'm your uh, humble host, your congenial host, your your hostess with the mostest, shall we say, uh, here at Good Seats, still available, our curious little podcast journey each week, believe it or not, into what used to be in professional sports. I welcome you to the proceedings. Uh, thank you for finding us, as always, not always, uh, not always easy. Uh, in podcast land, we try to make it as easy as possible. We're, God forbid, we're, we're available just about everywhere you can find podcasts, for God's sakes. Uh, and we love it when you tell your friends and you share us on social media and push our newsletter to your pals, all that kind of stuff. But um, we uh, we welcome you back here and uh, we hope that uh, reward you. We reward you. That's what he's trying to say uh, with a little fun filled uh, episode as we try to do each and every uh, seven days. We are uh, we're going to stick with soccer because it is the World Cup after all. We're uh, we've got World Cup fever. There's no doubt. There's no uh, no shame in it, frankly. Also, though, not just because of the sport of soccer, um, which we you know certainly are guilty of going uh, quite deeply on. But uh, rest assured, friends, the next couple of weeks we've got uh, stuff in football uh, and hockey. We've got some more baseball coming up. Uh, we're even going to finally crack the uh, the code. We hope on uh, a little interesting thing called Roller Hockey International. Uh, and uh, even world team tennis, frankly, finally, uh, which has been sort of a long time pursuit. And we finally have a hook uh, into the beginnings of that that kind of conversation. So stay tuned for all that. That's coming up. Uh, but this week we're uh, we're sticking with soccer. And it's not just about soccer this week's episode. We also kind of want to highlight. We enjoy highlighting, frankly, people that uh, were and are in the midst of uh, the fun and the frivolity that that uh, we uh, we celebrate on this show. The teams and leagues uh, no longer with us uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, dearly departed and, and otherwise. Uh, but uh, frankly, unsung heroes, people that uh, you may just have never heard of before, uh, but who have a wealth of information and know where, shall we say, many of the bodies are buried. Uh, and uh, those in the know kind of know, but perhaps uh, via this podcast, we kind of expose them uh, and the uh, the very uh, the fascinating uh, histories and stories and anecdotes and, uh, and all kinds of stuff that they've got locked in their little troves of uh, of their brains and and their experiences. And and one such gentleman is frankly somebody uh it truly fits the unsung hero uh, category especially as it relates to this this little podcast. Uh, his name is Tom Meredith and uh he has been largely responsible. Uh, and we have to now publicly call him out for this now. A wide raft of folks uh, that you've heard on this uh, on this podcast uh especially but not exclusively in the realm of uh, of pro soccer in this country. Uh and uh, we're finally going to give him his due. Uh, and get some uh, some granulars, shall we say, from his experiences. Uh, and in particular, there are teams that uh, we're going to get into into the weeds of that we really haven't gone uh, too deeply into. That uh, this is a perfect excuse uh, via our guest Tom Meredith 
uh, to talk about. One is the Tampa Bay Rowdies, arguably one of the uh, more successful uh, franchises in the history of the original North American Soccer League, a very seminal one uh, and very influential uh, in the uh, in the earlier days, if you will, of the NASL's uh, ascendance uh, into uh, sort of a large and uh, uh, significant success as the decades of the 1970s rolled on. Uh, we uh, also uh, bounce along with Tom into the story, the interesting story, the Philadelphia Fury. If you grew up in the Philadelphia area in the late uh, 70s, you probably remember a whole bunch of uh, rock and roll types uh, like Leif Garrett and uh, Paul Simon and Rick Wakeman and Peter Frampton. Uh, these were all people uh, that were part of the ownership group of uh, the star-studded, well, at least on the ownership side, star-studded, uh, Philadelphia Fury of the North American Soccer League, a, uh, an experiment that uh, you could make the argument went horribly wrong uh, in terms of the attendance there, uh, but it certainly um, it certainly was not without hijinks and interesting uh, background, and we're going to get to that. The Dallas Tornado, we've touched on them a little bit, uh, and the legacy uh, and the uh, just the tenacity uh, of its fa- of that team's founder and owner uh, Lamar Hunt, and, and we'll hear a lot more about Lamar Hunt's role. Uh, about his focus on on keeping the sport alive and, and the Dallas franchise and all that kind of stuff. And Tom was sort of uh, very much in the midst of that and Mr. Hunt's support and background as well. And uh, not uh, not the least, of course, uh, in the early 2000s, we uh, travel with Tom uh, into the world of the uh, three-year-long experiment known as the Women's United Soccer Association. This coming off the heels of a very successful uh, U.S. Women's World Cup in 1999. We talked about that, of course, uh, with our previous guest last week, J.P. Della Camera. Uh, but uh, Tom was the PR and uh, guy and whiz, if you will, uh, for the uh, fledgling uh, WUSA, which uh, certainly didn't lack for funding. Uh, but uh, after only three years, uh, uh, wasn't around anymore. And um, so we're gonna we're gonna hear those stories too. These are just some examples of uh, of the fun. Uh, interesting times uh, of of a long career in PR, uh, in particular uh, soccer, not exclusively, with Tom Meredith, the sort of unsung hero, if you will, of, uh, of pro soccer over the last 30 years uh, in relations to the PR game of the sport. Uh, and it's a very, very intriguing conversation, and I urge you to listen to all of it, uh, and you will enjoy uh, the bulk of it, I assure you. Uh, coming up in a couple of seconds, so let's uh, get a couple of promo items out of the way and get right to it, shall we? Uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, one of our uh, amazing sponsors and longtime sponsors. And as you know, uh, probably one of the uh, best places online to uh, find things from uh, the conversations that we we have here on this show uh, when it comes to teams and leagues and and various sports even uh, that are no longer with us or perhaps are in in, in newer or different incarnations, uh, but uh, left a a trail of memories in, in their wake. And uh, if you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com, look at all the great photography, all the items that are available. And if you find something that you're interested in, uh, and I'm pretty sure you're going to find at least one item, uh, I uh, almost guarantee it. I can't get nothing in life is guaranteed, but this is pretty darn close. When you when and when and if you do, I wouldn't even say if anymore, right? And when you do, make sure you use that promo code Good Seats, will you? Good Seats. That's the promo code, and you will get 15% off your purchases, all of your purchases, for that matter, at Sports History collectibles.com bookmark it now make sure you go give it a check out it's going to be awesome and don't forget that promo code good seats uh, when you decide to purchase and uh and get that credit card ready 
Uh, and our other sponsor, of course, also long time, and we thank them immensely and we appreciate. We had a few folks just last week actually sign up for this trial and we appreciate it very much. And uh, audiobooks are uh, the thing to do when you're not listening to your favorite podcasts or the streaming music service just keeps repeating the same old song over and over again. Why don't you get some audiobooks and put those in your queue? Why don't you? And the best place, of course, to do that is Audible. AudibleTrial.com slash good seats. That's the place to get your free one month subscription to the Audible service and a free audiobook download of your choice from over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can cancel at any time. And uh, it's uh, it's easy. It's no muss. It's no fuss. If you don't like it, hey, you cancel it and uh, uh, you're no worse for the wear. But we do uh, give you uh, uh, an, an ample opportunity uh, to sample it for yourself. I, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it. And uh, and audiobooks are just uh, they're just fun. They're a great way to kill time and learn and uh, and frankly, get uh, get smarter about life in general uh, while uh, not straining your eyes in the process. So go to audibletrial.com slash good seats and get your free audiobook download and free one-month uh, trial of the service. And again, you can cancel at any time. We appreciate Audible for their sponsorship, and we absolutely appreciate you giving them a consideration uh, and a try at that little site. Thanks a lot. All right, so uh, let's uh, smoothly segue into our uh, very uh, interesting, always is, conversation I learned a ton uh, from, again, one of the unsung heroes of professional soccer, the public relations angle of such here in the United States. His name is Tom Meredith, and this is our conversation that we had just a few weeks ago. Perhaps as we sort of get going, maybe uh, you can give our audience a little bit of a sense of who this Tom Meredith guy is and uh, and why he's been so uh, so helpful to us in the realm of especially pro soccer, but um, pro sports and, and, and various incarnations of teams and leagues that for whatever reason don't exist anymore. Who, who is Tom Meredith? Well, I appreciate being a guest, Tim, and I love your podcast, and I've loved listening to your earlier guests. Um, I think it's just that I've been able to last for 40-plus years, but uh, I think I, I really need to thank uh, and I, I think it's a little bit of a lost art today, but I'm very, um, uh, I'm a recipient of, of a whole bunch of folks, particularly early on in my career, that were mentors to me, and have a lot of them have been friends now for 40, 50 years in the business, and uh, in the sports business, it kind of goes around in circle. Usually, the the good folks that I know have been around in a lot of different sports, and I've just been real lucky to have a bunch of mentors. And I think the other thing is that because I've been lucky enough, and it's all serendipity, uh, is is I think I've been lucky enough to be in a lot of different sports, American football, tennis, soccer, of course, which is my first love, uh, in that I think I've taken things from the other sports and used them in my career in soccer and, and then vice versa in in American uh, men's professional tennis, which uh, I did when I worked for Lamar Hunt, etc. So I've just been real lucky. I've lived a lot of places. I have a great wife of 42 years who I, I met at a soccer game, and uh, she's been very good to travel around the United States and live in eight states to uh, apply my trade, so to speak. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, when you talk about the trade, so functionally, right, what would you, you would consider yourself largely as a, as a, promotion well more a pr kind of guy that's pretty much your your go-to uh skill set that you brought to the sports world over those over those many years no well i started as a as a, t a 
a newspaper reporter, which is probably the great training that I had for a very small 17,000 circulation daily in upstate New York, uh, the Oneonta Star, which was in the hometown of the the school I went to, Hartwick, which is very well known for its soccer programs over the years. But I think that um, I started as a PR person, particularly early on in the old North American soccer league teams and in men's pro tennis, and that ev- and uh, also with the U.S. Soccer Federation when I was the one of the early directors of communications there when it really was a fledgling national governing body. But I think from there, I evolved into really liking the organization part of of the game. And for the last half of the career, whatever number of years that is, 20, 25, I've been very lucky to be in the event side. So I'm I'm an organizer or the glue between stadiums, teams, uh, promoters, and uh, the organization of putting games on. I've done it for the Cricket World Cup. I did it for the I was lucky enough to be part of the basketball, the college basketball game played on the active flight deck of a carrier in San Diego. And then, of course, all the soccer games that we've done recently and been lucky enough to be a part of and see. Well, so it's it's also interesting, too, I guess, as we sort of get into some of the weeds and obviously the the. The, some of the crazy stories that you've shared over the uh, over the many months, I'm sure some of those will, will sort of come out here. But um, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, given your um, uh, the longitude of uh, of your career, uh, has you know, let, let's talk about maybe functionally that the role of being a quote unquote PR person. Uh, and you're mentioning obviously uh, both personally and I suspect uh, as sort of a function in the in the industry, um, a morph, I guess, into. I guess PR being something much more, um, shall we say, polyglot, right? When it gets into uh, presentation of events and maybe even social media. And, and I, I guess what I'm getting at is that the PR role of your, right, is uh, far more maybe important uh, and much more uh, hybrid and maybe overlapping to other functions that might have been more, I guess, separately distinguished in the past and maybe is uh, has taken on some newer life and that meaning in today's sort of modern digital world. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. There's so many different aspects that have, that have grown, changed, both in scope, numbers, attention to. Sure, we, play, we paid attention to the, the straight uh, service to media when I was involved back in the old North American Soccer League days. But as you reference, it has certainly changed a billionfold on any level, whether it's the the individual professional team, the league, the one-off international game, a national governing body or a federation, and and certainly the rise of social media. And I'm in no way, <laughs> I'm an old guy, so in no way does do I totally understand the social media aspect of today and how far-reaching it is. And as some of your previous guests have talked about, Jim Trecker in particular, in terms of you know some of the things that we did in soccer and that that happened at the Cosmos, for example, the the uh, uh, the advent or the idea that a, a woman was allowed in the locker room, which in those days, in the 70s, a lot of teams and, and leagues fought or at least turned their back to, and now it's just happenstance. But certainly to your original question, the, the scope, the attention, uh, certainly the attention for our sport has grown. Uh, when I started and I saw uh, an ad in a magazine that had a soccer ball and a car ad, I would rip that thing out, and if I could find a Xerox in those days, I would Xerox it or copy it and send it to the five other friends that I knew that cared about it, 
and we'd go, man, we just had a soccer ball in a in a car ad, in a national car ad in the magazine. And now I, I don't even care. I don't even notice or or uh, keep track of the number of aspects or things or times you see soccer used as a selling thing. And then lastly, because of the in, involvement to the positive of the commerce part of the game and the, and the money that's come into the game that helps it. And there's, there's dark sides to that, sure. But the commerce that's come into the game requires everybody that's on the working side of the event to help with those commercial placements and the, the access to athletes that it's just self-perpetuating and helps grow the sport. So that has really been different over the last 20 years in particular in this country. Well, you know, as we've done these these silly little uh, shows, the, uh, the, the there are a lot of themes that sort of uh, uh, repeat themselves and, and are underlying uh, to a lot of sort of the evolution of stuff. And, and you're mentioning one, right? Money is, uh, is obviously, I mean, we're going to sort of go back, I guess, and, and sort of get to your, uh, how you sort of originally adjuncted into this uh, crazy sports world. But, you know, a, I don't want to say it was sort of a quainter time, but uh, it probably certainly was, well, certainly when it came to uh, the money and the business side. Now that said, right? I mean, there are plenty of sports entrepreneurs that have been around for you know the earliest days of professional baseball, for example, right? Who've always been, you know, uh, thinking about sort of the money and and the the businesses or business opportunities related to a such sport. But but you know the magnitude, uh, you know, we see it in today's World Cup or or the U.S. getting the 2026 World Cup, right? I mean, promising FIFA something on the order of 14, 15 billion dollars in profit. Um, that's just a, it's a light years away from perhaps when you even began a fledgling little PR and sports career back in the early 1970s. Certainly. And, and I'm, it is, it is a little discomforting. Uh, that's about as strong a word I'll, I'll use as some of the aspects in today. And I was, I was a little bit uncomfortable as a fan seeing that promodulated the 14, 15 billion dollar thing, but that's the world we live in. I still think that there is a uh, a certain code that I hope everybody uh, adheres to in terms of doing the right thing, both on behalf of the sport and behalf of the people on both sides of the ball, so to speak. I, I might be old and I might be a curmudgeon, but I hope that that is still part of of what people think about. The other thing I wanted to insert is that the context is important. I referenced uh, 25, 30 years ago, and I, I would suggest that in some respects that's a lost aspect or an un, and, and uh, people don't educate themselves as to um, what it was like in the old days and the players and things. You watch the NBA finals and LeBron is all of a sudden the greatest of all time. And I would say, did you ever see Jerry West or, or Wilt Chamberlain or Oscar Robertson play? Well, no, I didn't. Well, then how do you know that LeBron's the greatest of all time? We well, have a look, habit even, of doing even, that. Even the comparisons to Michael Jordan, which is only a, a, a short generation away, right? I mean, the questioning of even that legacy at, at this, you know, in today's modern. I mean, it's just it's it does require a bit of a, a step back and a, and a holistic view of things. And that's partially why we sort of do these shows, because not only is it uh, uh, important to sort of remember and learn from history and, and sort of see some of the seeds of things that exist today, which, you know, this generation obviously thinks are brand new things and issues and, and events, but also recognizing, too, that, uh, uh, that you know, there is um, there's many things that preceded today's current uh, 
world that, you know, arguably are part of the uh, the tableau and, and probably need to be considered uh, after the event or the excitement of the immediacy of today. Certainly, and, and I'll give you a segue to we'll go back to it, but uh, I know of a group of millennials that were meeting recently to discuss the milestones of, of my chosen sport of soccer, and they all agreed. There was nobody, there was only one person in the room over 50 years of age or 40 years of age, and they unanimously agreed that the greatest milestone in the history of the sport in our country, this country, was Beckham coming to America. And a friend of mine was in the room and said, well, what about 1975 and Pelé coming to the United States? Well, that doesn't count because, A, there weren't enough eyeballs on it at the time, and, B, that league went out of business, so it doesn't count. Yeah, perfect, uh, perfect, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, discussion point, right, because... Yeah, I, look, this is I, I'm not a historian. You know, I just play one on TV, right? Uh, and nor am I uh, an academician. Uh, and you know, I, there are obviously you know, more professionally oriented and uh, and heritaged people who sort of focus on these things. But you know, it's it's not unlike general history, right? Um, mine is just a sort of a weird little slice of it, right? And and you know, the teams and leagues that don't exist or or have in previous incarnations. But it's all part of right the fabric of whatever the sports landscape is today. And, you know, it's ironic. I mean, I would have asked probably your your millennial uh, uh, audience there, right? You know, where does the the name Portland Timbers come from, right? Where we, you know, we heard of the San Jose earthquakes that didn't sort of, that wasn't chosen to replace the original name that Major League Soccer had for the San Jose franchise, right? Uh, it went yep. back, uh, uh, you know, decades prior. And and it, it's a throwback, it's a callback, and, and there's a history there. For, for, and and it's important. Um, it would be interesting to know or hear uh, the audience sort of respond to to that, and maybe frankly not understand sort of what came before Major League Soccer and David Beckham. Right. Well, a couple of points too, and it happens today. I saw it with the story about the Eagles getting their Super Bowl rings, and emblazoned on the side of it is World Champions, and that's driven me nuts for fifty years. If it's the World Series, they should play the Japanese in seven games. If it's the if it's the NFL World Championship, they should play the, the Canadians three downs in a rouge. And I, I think it was, I'm a cliche guy, I think it was Kissinger who said once that Americans have 5% of the world's population and 95% of its sporting arrogance. We, we think that all of our sports are what happens in the rest of the world. And soccer is, and that was really what attracted me to the sport, to be honest, Tim, in the beginning was the internationalness of it, the fact that everybody played it, and when you have a World Cup game, you have a, what, a, a German referee, a team from Iran, and a team from wherever, and when the whistle blows, they kind of all know what what happened, and they might disagree with it, but they know a foul is a foul, and in the NFL, you need somebody to tell you six times, was that offside or encroachment? And I think that's one of the things that drew me to the sport. Well, let's talk about that. So let's let's talk about how specifically you got involved, right? So so let's uh, let's dial the wayback machine to you know circa early 1970s, right? You're you're uh, if I have this correct, you you're essentially uh, uh, dropping out of college and uh, and joining the uh, the ranks of uh, of of journalism by working at the Star in Oneonta, New York, and um, and essentially being a sports writer, I'm assuming, and uh, obviously having some uh, exposure to uh, a very powerhouse uh, team in in Hartwick College. 
uh, in the sport of soccer. Um, give us some sense of how you uh, found soccer, or perhaps maybe even better described, it found you. Well, there's, yeah, there's two things. One is that that through a family circumstance, I didn't start college regularly like other people. I skipped my fall semester of 1969, my freshman year at Hartwick in Oneonta, which of course has two schools there, Oneonta State and Hartwick, that were both good at the time and good in other sports as well. And I remember going to going to school in December, and there was this morose around the college that I just said, what's going on here? Did I make a mistake? Did I pick the wrong place? Because everybody was really downcast. And I'm like, I asked the guy that I got to know, I said, what's going on here? He said, everybody's so sad. And he said, you don't understand. This this place cares. We lost to Harvard in double overtime in the NCAA finals. And that atmosphere carried over to the college. And that fall, when I went to games, or the following fall, I remember vividly it raining real hard. And a, and a guy was in our dorm was sick. They carried that guy's bed with a with a canopy up to the up to the uh, field, Elmore Field, which is uphill in Oneonta, so, so he could watch the game. And I go, man, what is it about that sport? And in terms of being introduced to the sport, some people have an epiphany, some don't. Mine was November 28, 1970, a Eastern NCAA. Division One final, Hartwick and Harvard, the same team that we had lost to in double overtime the year before with people like Timo Leokoski and Alec Papadakis. And on the Harvard side, although he didn't play that in that game, and he's still upset about the fact that he didn't, Shep Messing was a reserve goalkeeper. That game was 3-0 Hartwick at halftime, and we ended up winning 4-3 at the buzzer, so to speak. And I go, man, that's something i got to be a part of for the rest of my life. And as a part of being at Hartwick, I was a student SID, small school, and I and I got a chance to deliver news releases to the local newspaper, and I just got really infatuated with the whole idea of ink on paper and the smell and the sounds and just being able to write something and seeing an hour after you do it, if it's 1 o'clock in the morning, you get to see your, your name in print. And I was lucky that I was able, when I was hired as a sophomore in college, to hire to, to watch and cover Hartwick College's teams, and Oneonta State with Farouk Qureshi, and they won a Division II title at that time, in that time frame. Plus, we had a Class A farm team of the Yankees that was really good, and a whole bunch, and I was 28 miles from Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame, so I covered uh, three or four actual Hall of Fame inductions. Uh, and so all that sort of led to me being really trained well, there's something when you're a 20-some-odd-year-old kid in those days, and it might be lost in some respects today, but there's something to, to be told when you come back from a game, I need eight inches of copy, I need it in 20 minutes, and off you go. And if you don't, <laughs> your story doesn't get it in the paper, and the next time the editor or the sports editor is going to give you a hard time. So that training about being on deadlines and being able to think quick, um, I saw my first dead person uh, when I worked in the newspaper. I, I knew how to took, take an obituary correctly from a guy that had been doing it for four years. So you learn those sort of things, and that discipline has carried over for me, fortunately. All right, so how did you, uh, how did you stumble into this uh, fledgling North American soccer league? Because arguably, uh, in the early 70s, right, it was, uh, you know, I, pro soccer in this country, right, had uh, sort of 
gone through a, a, a life or frankly death experience, right? At the after a, a, a pretty a pretty amazing uh, assemblage of people putting some money into it uh, in the late '60s, and it frank, frankly basically collapsing, and was really on life support in that early '70s. But how, how did you get snagged into uh, what was then, I guess, a, a re-fledgling uh, NASL and pro soccer league? Well, through two people that we'll talk about quite a bit potentially here. One is Francisco Marcos, who is uh, the guy who founded the United Soccer League system and is um, should be in the Soccer Hall of Fame, in my opinion, in this country. He he took me under his wing, one of those mentors, and he and he, by his own passion of the sport, uh, introduced me to the passion of it. And really, I'm a book learned soccer guy. I didn't play. The other is Al Miller who was the coach at Hartwick when I was in school there and then went on to coach at the Adams. But Francisco also got involved nationally with the Federation at that time, also pretty pretty fledgling and mom and pop. But uh, he started a magazine on behalf of the Federation Soccer Monthly, which probably was ahead of its time and certainly was a financial drain. But I wrote a lot of stuff and assisted him as the, edit- as the assistant editor of that magazine. And one of the things we did is we went to New York from Oneana and interviewed Phil Woosnam in his offices of the old North American Soccer League and then went to see a Cosmos game at Hostra. That's 1972. And then Al Miller, being the first American or the first uh, in modern history American to coach in the professional leagues, went to Philadelphia. I never worked for that team, but I certainly saw, went down with Francisco and saw a bunch of games and knew a bunch of the people. And and that's how I got sort of introduced to the sport. And then in November of 74, it was about 10 degrees in Oneana. It was snowing, and Francisco was leaving Oneana to go be the first PR guy of the expansion Tampa Bay Rowdies in the North American Soccer League. And he said, why don't you come with me? Didn't have a girlfriend. Lease was up. Owned my own car. 10 degrees, 75 degrees. November, I go, I'm in. And uh, we moved to Florida, and uh, I helped him in a very small way. Helped, and it was a great experience. Helped, uh, arguably the most, uh, the best brand next to the Cosmos potentially in that mid '70s period. Uh, helped him and the rest of the great folks at in Tampa Bay start that team before the Bucks came along, and the, they won the championship in '75. So that sort of cemented my interest in the sport. All right, so so give our audience a bit of a sense of of Tampa Bay. It's a, it's a in 1974. It is an expansion franchise in a newly aggressively expanding North American Soccer League. I, I um, maybe you can give our audience a sense of sort of the. Uh, the time and the tone of Tampa Bay. Uh, you're mentioning before uh, the Bucks came to town. This is obviously uh, during the uh, construction, or perhaps just after the construction of Tampa Stadium, the uh, the uh, the old sombrero. Old um, sombrero, right? And and, and uh, I'd love to get give our audience a bit of a sense of what what this Tampa Bay franchise kind of was in its early days, because it was arguably a seminal franchise over time uh, in the NASL, and uh, frankly indicative, I think of the renewed spirit that uh, perhaps Mr. Woosnam had given you uh, during that first interview about how <clears throat> this league could be a, a national and uh, international phenomenon in the years to come. Right. I played a very small part in that in that start, but just being a spectator, so to speak, to the, to the great minds. There are a couple of things. First of all, the Rowdies uh, went to a, and I'm not being uh, uh, disparaging when I say this, the Tampa Bay, and it's always Tampa Bay, so it included across the bay, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, 
as well as Tampa, but it was always a big, small town, even though it was very protective of its individual identities uh, as a as an area they were very clear that it was a Tampa Bay franchise two is is they there was no soccer there so if somebody like Francisco who again I'm prejudiced I'm biased uh, he's been uh, maybe my biggest mentor in 50 years is is that he helped start the youth association there when there was really no soccer there was a little bit of adult soccer so he started a team in that league and his team beat the perennial St. Pete kickers a number of times. So that gave us, uh, on the amateur side, the adult side, uh, some added credibility. But the folks that were involved in that team, from ownership, George Strawbridge, who was an heir to the Campbell Soup Fortune, to Bo Rogers, who was the GM, Marty Rockberg, the, the marketing guy, Francisco, Eddie Fromani was the coach who then got uh, spirited away. Uh, to the cosmos, as you know, but they they didn't have rules in terms of or didn't follow the norms. You know, soccer's a kick in the grass. They had a song written, and the guy who wrote that song, soccer's a kick in the grass, uh, uh, an advertising firm in Atlanta and Tampa offices. He'd never seen a game. They just did a lot of research and was and made it fun, and it was a great thing to go to. And again, they they won a championship. The Two years before, or a year before the Bucks started, which helped a lot, right, in terms of timing. And I think those stories were repeated in a bunch of the markets around the country, whether they had a, a, a team like the Tornado that maybe was around from the 67, you referenced the USA, uh, the original situation that occurred in pro soccer in this country after 66 World Cup, where two competing factions fought it out and there were not many left standing after that but you had Dallas you had San Jose you had Portland you had Seattle and you Chicago with Lee Stern um, those those teams came up and filled the void I think for a number of places that either in those days couldn't be or wouldn't be or were priced out potentially of other major sports whether it's the NFL or Major League Baseball or in that, in some respects, the NBA, and it became the young thing to do, the place to go to have fun, and they they didn't subscribe all the time to all the cultural and and uh, what um, athletic norms in those days. Not nefariously, just in terms of having fun, and I think that that's probably the major thing that really made Tampa work. And and they had great rivalries with Fort Lauderdale and the Cosmos, as you know. And I think that all added to it. Would you would it be would you say that uh, that the uh, the arrival of that that team in '74 uh, cemented or maybe even got going the uh, uh, the opportunity and or rationale for the NFL to finally uh, uh, expand there in '76 with the Bucks? Well, it was about the same time. One of the great trivia questions of all time is that the original owner of the Buccaneers, when that franchise was awarded in, 19, in June of 74, was not Hugh, Hugh Culverhouse, the Jacksonville tax attorney, who eventually got the franchise and, start, and played games 76-77. The original owner was a guy named Tom McCloskey, who ironically... Uh, was the Adams uh, owner in in Philadelphia it was a builder and who Al Miller worked for etc and because of some family issues uh, for the first time in that memory and maybe hasn't happened too many times McCloskey had to give the franchise up so that was a little bit of a blip but 
again, I think that uh, back to your original question is I think that the the uh, the fact that we opened up uh, that market to uh, professional sports and a team from Portland would would come. They didn't have professional sports there except for um, you know spring training and that kind of stuff. So they really helped, and the media. Uh, was uh, was very receptive. Francisco again was sort of like the Masonic uh, approach that he really uh, was 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 very energetic, knew his knew his business, and just sort of dared them to come in and watch them, and they would have a good time. And they saw the fun. The media saw the fun that the people had, and they embraced it. St. Petersburg Times and the Tampa Tribune. Clearwater Sun and the news and the, the television and radio stations. So it all added to it. It was a perfect storm, and and I think it's one of the great franchise stories of all time. So uh, as we say, so let's segue into '75, right? That's uh, I, I, you uh, found yourself then uh, going to another team uh, for the bulk of the 1975 season, just up the uh, well, not just up the road, right? So you're back up to. The East Coast and the Washington Diplomats. Um, how does that happen? And I guess it's largely uh, because you're getting known and uh, circulated, shall we say, in what is now a quickly uh, expanding uh, NASL. Right. And again, I have to thank Francisco Marcos for this. There was a league meeting in Tampa. Again, it's a nice place to come and visit when you're meeting in in the wintertime. And they had a, a league meeting and they had uh, uh, Jim Carvelis, who you know, um, know of from the from the Cosmos days was the managing partner of the Washington Diplomats team. Thanks for calling it the Diplomats and not the Dips. Us old guys for the Dips and Diplomats don't like that other term. But uh, he was looking for a PR person, and Francisco said to me, "I don't think you're ready yet, but go and have fun." And and I went, and that was when uh, Pele came to the NASL, and we had a game in June about a month after he uh, he had joined the league, and we drew 35,000 people to RFK, and people took notice, and, and I had a good time. We had a probably one of the most fun experiences of my life was being part of a team where Dennis Violet, a very famous English player, still uh, holds the record, I believe, for most goals scored for Manchester United in a single season. And he was the coach of that team. And I'm not sure what was more fun, the games or the post games where Dennis would, if you couldn't laugh with Dennis Violet, you didn't have a sense of humor. And all the players were, were old, were veteran uh, English league guys. And they, they played hard. They, they played hard. And it was just a great experience to apply my trade, Washington Post and and all of those things where you you trial and error, you figure out what works or doesn't. And it was all part of the learning process for me. All right. So a couple of things to unpack there. So let's talk about Jim Carvelis, because uh, as a kid, right, uh, my uh, first and, and deepest knowledge of of, uh, of him was obviously being sort of the voice of the cosmos and uh, from you know, a little bit here and there in 76 and 77, but then more full-time-ish, I guess, uh, well, 77 and onward, right, literally was uh, the voice along with uh, uh, Seamus Mal, a little bit of the Howard David Pryor and um, in years prior. So, but but uh, I, I do, in my sort of uh, uh, crack research, uh, do keep hearing and seeing his name uh, in the earlier years of soccer, right? And you're mentioning he was a general partner, I guess, in this 
Washington Diplomats franchise. But uh, maybe you can give a little bit of background of what maybe what his background was, uh, because, you know, how do you be how are you a broadcaster, but also an owner, I guess, or uh, I mean, he obviously was in involved in sports and or sports promotion. Is that uh, is that true? Well, I'm not sure how much I'm not sure how much money he actually put into it. There were actually for the original diplomats were owned by some insurance guys in Silver Spring, Maryland. But Carvelis was a very very good play by play guy and was the sports director of a, a Washington TV station. Also did the Baltimore Bullets um, uh, games, West Unsold, etc. Baltimore Bullets games for a number of years on TV and radio, and it was so fun to be with Jim just, and oh, and by the way, he was Greek, so you know he had some background or, or love of the game, I think hereditarily, because Greeks do, but I, I never asked him what his, what his uh, reason for being involved in the sport was. I just knew that he loved it, he loved being around the athletes, and he liked uh, just being a part of it, and that's really uh, one of the few, uh, I just don't know why he did it, but I know he had a direct interest, and it would be really fun to be in an office with him and say, Jim, give us three minutes of Baltimore Bullets, and he could do a play-by-play off the top of his head, and you would just go, man, that's as good as watching Musburger or Schinkel or anybody in those days. He was, And he had great pipes, as you remember, so he loved the sport. Yeah, no doubt, great pipes. I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've had this uh, conversation w- w- with a bunch of folks. Uh, our, our episode with uh, JP Della Camera, which will be uh, posting uh, as we record this uh, sometime later uh, uh, next week, um, and and he recalls JP does uh, uh, sort of you know listening to and in, in, uh, in later years growing up with uh, the voice of Jim Carvelis. And if you go back to some of those old YouTube clips of of those Cosmos games, you know those games, and perhaps this is sort of through the you know, the halo or the uh, the filter of sort of a lost childhood and youth, right? Okay, so fair fair assessment. But those games hold up, right? And his broadcasts of those games hold up. And I, and I said this to, to JP, I think, you know, arguably uh, some of the uh, current announcers for Major League Soccer, let's say, in this country could, uh, could benefit because the way that he had, he brought sort of professional chops, right? Good pipes, uh, but also a good sense of, you know, not only sort of like when to sort of, you know, uh, ramp it up, uh, you know, uh, histrionically for uh, for a match, but also kind of knew sort of how to how to play the the tone and the and the uh, uh, the the timber of the game, uh, you know, when to lay out, when not to, and uh, you know, arguably, I, I think he's probably one of the better soccer, if not the best soccer broadcaster of of a generation. That you know that you know maybe shows folks how maybe how it could be or should be done. Well, hundred percent, and you reference. You reference him not speaking, and us, uh, uh, us old guys, always think that the things that we saw in the 70s and 80s is better than today. But I'll give you one example for Carvelis. I'd ask your listeners to go to the same YouTube and listen to somebody that I met because he did the preseason games for the Buccaneers, but was very famous back in the 60s, but would never make it today. Go back and listen to Ray Scott, the NFL announcer, do football games man you would go 30 seconds without hearing something but ray scott was as good as it got to me in those days and i think carvelis was one of those kinds of guys yeah i i think underrated uh, and uh, and you know as the u.s uh, soccer uh, hall of fame gets uh, rebooted uh in uh, the fall i you know i i would hope that um one of the themes that uh, they could sort of go back into is sort of the history of soccer and broadcasting in this country 
Uh, and I think at that point, once that's uh, uh, some time is spent on it, I think you'll see Mr. Carvelis pop up and uh, and arguably uh, uh, in on that short list, perhaps of some of the the pioneers that could be recognized or should be. Um, oh, there should there should be a broadcaster's list. You also mentioned Seamus, and and the segue back to that Hartwick game that I referenced. And Seamus and I have talked about it a lot over the last forty years because he was an assistant coach. He was fifty years at Harvard in the admissions office before he retired, and then he obviously uh, moonlighted, so to speak, as a sports announcer, soccer announcer. So you know him from that. But I've spoken to Seamus a, mil- a million times about that. 4-3 Hartwick game, and his answer always is one that I love and I use when I speak at, at different things about Hartwick stuff, and, I, and he said it was the best day and the worst day he ever spent in the sport. The best day, because it was as I think it was, and again, 40 years or 45 years makes a lot of difference, uh, I think it's the best athletic contest I've seen in my life after 60-some-odd years. And Seamus will also tell you it was the worst day because he said on the entire five, and this happens all the time in sport, but he still remembers it, the entire bus ride back to, to Cambridge, nobody said a word. They were that devastated losing that game. And the year before when we lost to, or I say we, when Hartwick lost to uh, Harvard, Alec Papadakis, who now is the CEO of USL, has told me many times, as, and he played in the NASL five, six years with a couple of teams, uh, Alec has told me many times that that game was the toughest loss he ever experienced as, in his athletic career. So people care about that stuff, and I'm glad they do. Well, another guy that should be in that short list is Seamus Mallon. I mean, again, you go back to Carvelis and Mallon calling those games, and I think many people of a certain age sort of remember those games and, and, and hold them up as the gold standard for and, – and, and look, the Cosmos were a gold standard on a number of different fronts, but but broadcasting uh, was absolutely one of them, and, and hopefully it's uh, rediscovered uh, as the years go on and as we sort of look back at what is a rich history between soccer and, uh, and broadcasting at this time. Let's go back to the Rowdies, though, because you did – uh, after that 75 season with the dips, um, I, I guess I also want to get some some thoughts about what you were seeing uh, during that time, right, which is a crucial time, right, the three-year period of time uh, that Pele uh, came to the league, uh, you know, became the sort of traveling circus uh, throughout the league, um, but also was the uh, backdrop and perhaps the foundation for you know, what then now was 18 going on 20, and then ultimately in the latter part of the decade, 24 teams. I mean, it's almost like a, a, a miraculous, you know, rise for a Phoenix rising, if you will, without Phoenix, of course, the actual city, uh, into, you know, something that was only five teams uh, in 1970 and 71. Um, what, was your, what was your sense of the NASL during that period of time at the dips and, and with, the, uh, with the Rowdies? Um, what was your... Give us a sense of what you sort of sort of saw. I mean, did you, you know, what what was your what was your understanding of this league and 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 what its future was? Because it certainly seemed to be growing by leaps and bounds and, and a whole lot of enthusiasm behind it. Yeah, and and it's the benefit of of forty years as well, isn't it, Tim? That that when we were involved, when I was involved, Francisco and who whomever it was at at various franchises, we didn't think of the. Of how what this is going to be in in five years, ten years, twenty years. I mean, 
unfortunately that it's it's still hung on us that the people in those times in the mid 70s said you know we're the sport of the 80s or the sport of the 70s and we're not there yet but we're we're getting closer in terms of being a mainstream you know i have a, a whole a whole bunch of ideas about that but in those days, I don't think we really understood it. I remember, I'll give you one example, it might not be germane here, but I remember flying uh, later in, in that period when I was with the Philadelphia team and we were flying to Oakland for a game and I'm sitting next to Johnny Giles, the famous Irish player and former coach, etc., played at Leeds in the English League. And I said, Johnny, you've been here for a week. What do you think of North American Soccer League in the United States? He says, the country's too bloody big you know, five hours to get across country for games. And I think that's still the issue. But to, to your question, I just think that the folks that were involved, uh, there was a sprinkling of people that had, had cut their chops, so to speak, as you referenced, in other sports, predominantly baseball in particular, and got involved in, in soccer. But most of us were young. Most of us were relatively green and inexperienced. And, and we just found our own way. Sometimes we didn't do well. Sometimes we did very well. Uh, you could make the the statement just like just like it is in in the English league now. You know, is Manchester City good or bad for the sport? In those days, were the Cosmos good or bad for the sport? I personally believe that, as you and Jim Trecker talked about in a previous podcast, I personally believe it was good for the sport because it brought us. Uh, coverage nationally even though it was a new york team and i think it it gave us some credibility because pele is still pele and i think that it it really uh helped broaden the appeal for the average fan to maybe try us but in terms of thinking about what the context was i'm not sure we did a lot of thinking about that i can tell you the other part that kind of makes me laugh today where uh, when you have an Ibrahimovic come to the LA Galaxy and they go, wow, he's 34 years old. Why is he coming here to, you know, this is where old English players come to die, etc." I would submit to you that anybody that, again, took the time to watch those teams play, if you found a more exciting player than um, Ace Netzelengwe from Minnesota, who I think was the most uh, complete player I saw in that league, irrespective of my friends in New York, or if, if you saw uh, some of the guys that played in, in other teams in other places, the Vancouver teams in those days were very good with the Leonard Doozy brothers, etc. And so I, I don't make any excuses for the quality of play uh, that the majority of teams had in those days. How about the, uh, the, the, the traveling show that was the Cosmos, right? So you're, you know, in, in, um, in Washington and in, in Tampa Bay, and we'll get to some of your Philadelphia uh, experiences in the latter part uh, of the uh, of the '70s in a minute, but uh, maybe even with the Fury as well. Give me a give me a sense of sort of the I don't know. It feels like both pros and cons, right? Of uh, a date or two with the Cosmos, either with or without Pele, depending on what year we're talking about. Um, it almost feels like. The arrival of the team for a game in that those your those respective cities is sort of the could be the best of times and then arguably the worst of times given when the the circus leaves town uh, and the remainder of the season beckons. Um, any any insights on sort of that sort of phenomenon? Well, I, I, absolutely, and I, and I will say in Tampa's case in particular, 
the, the best of times were when the big bad cosmos came to town and we had some really huge games with those guys in uh, 76, 77, etc. The good news was that the home team, Tampa, won a lot of those games, whether regular season or playoffs in particular. So that adds to the, when your home team wins in any sport, any league, any time, that helps you. And, and a couple of the folks, and one of the things I learned from, from uh, even though I had no impact in those days in scheduling of games, but I learned it in uh, later years during the women's league involvements that I had, is, is we had some big-time players, whether it be Mia Hamm or Brandy Chastain or whatever, and everybody clamored they wanted to open the season with, with one of those players because it jump-started your season. And I had a couple of pretty smart friends in that league who said, I don't care if, if they come to me second or third. I know I'm going to do well at my opener. I need help in games two, three, and four. And that's what you learn when you when you spend some time in that. But uh, certainly winning winning when you're uh, when you're exposed to that. But but the other part of that original question is in terms of Pele, when he came to town, uh, Jim Trecker and the Cosmos, and he talked about it on your podcast, uh, uh, is that um, it it transcended just the uh, the regular media or sports media, and you had some the news side covering it because it was a big event when he would come to town because of the fact that he was a national or international symbol and certainly a, a national hero in Brazil. When, um, you know, I, it's clear, though, that uh, Tampa Bay, uh, you know, seemed to do quite well uh, in addition to or beyond sort of the Cosmos showing up uh, for a game or two. Um but probably that was not the case as much in a number of other cities, right? You can make the argument out Vancouver and Seattle and Minnesota and, and right some other very successful sort of franchises. But for every one of those, right, there was a, dare I say it, a Philadelphia Fury, for example, right? Which seems to me like it was, uh, you know, part of that sort of hyper extension of uh, the league from 18 to 24 teams circa 1978, where... Uh, Phil Woosnam, you know, had, uh, I don't want to say stars in his eyes, but certainly a a more North American-wide map, right, to uh, potentially become more uh, interesting to national television and all those kinds of things, arguably maybe ahead of its time. Um, but maybe you can we use this as a convenient segue into the Philadelphia Fury escapade, um, you know, because I think it's emblematic of the other side of all this growth and, and attraction and, and media attention and, and fan interest. Because not every team in the North American Soccer League circa that era, right, 24 teams, was as strong and as stable and as, uh, uh, you know, uh, well-rooted as, say, the Tampa Bay Rowdies or, or Cosmos, right? Right. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use Lamar Hunt. I'm going to insert him in the conversation uh, here. And I always learned from him with my experience with him that you're only as strong as your weakest link, which is going to play to this answer and to your question. And and a lot of those folks at the Fury aren't around anymore, so I guess they can't chase me for being uh, 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 negative. But I, I think they are, in some respects, a poster child for what not to do. And there's a, no, a number of reasons for that that we still see today, in my opinion. And uh, there's certainly... Um, back to why that happened, uh, and it was a, a matter of, uh, I think, the, although you'd have to ask, unfortunately, uh, he's passed now, but you'd have to ask Phil and other people involved why 
they wanted to add eight teams or six teams in one year, et cetera. And it was, I think they felt that they had to uh, broaden that uh, national footprint, big country, so it's hard to do uh, for the television side because the conventional wisdom was if you're on television, you've made it. And uh, I, I've always believed that bottom line is the family's in the seats first and then the television follows rather than the other way around. But that's for a, a athletic sociologist to say. But in terms of the fury, the folks involved were predominantly um, from across the pond. We had a very good general manager, Bob Ellinger, who was a veteran of of uh, um, the Adams, and he was recirculated, or, so to speak, but in a nice way as a GM of the Philadelphia Fury. But these owners that were mostly in the music business, um, including some of their stars, and I and I saw Peter Frampton and Rick Wakeman and Paul Simon and and um, Leith Garrett at games, but uh, I think it was their surrogates that were using their money to uh, to promote that team. But and it's well it's well documented that on the way into the news conference to name to announce the name of the team as the Philadelphia Fury, there were a number of people in that ownership group that were arguing that they wanted the name Furies, F-U-R-I-E-S, and that kind of a let's let's be positive the dichotomy of thought or action that you can never you. Once you got a consensus the next day, somebody would say, well, what about doing this? And then they'd change. So it was very hard for, Al, for uh, Bob Ellinger to, uh, to sort of navigate that. Um, they argued about a coach until the time that they, had to, they hired a guy from the U.K. that was a school teacher. That got much maligned in Philadelphia, which is a tough market anyway. And then the second coach they hired was a Yugoslav guy who was the nicest person on the planet, but in Philadelphia, it didn't speak a word of English, and that limited yourself. And then on the player side, because these owners, English Englishmen in, in particular, were all fans of of their respective teams in the in the UK, predominantly Spurs, Chelsea, etc. Their idea was to relive their younger years or childhoods and bring some players to the to the Fury that possibly shouldn't have been on that team in terms of effectiveness at the age where they came across. And all that was the perfect storm or hurricane in the opposite direction, and it was just a tough thing to overcome. Yeah, uh, it, that seems like a crazy story, right? I, among many crazy stories of ownership uh, in that league, but uh, I, I, it sounds to me like it was more the music management teams of folks like Leif Garrett and Paul Simon and Wake, Wakeman and Frampton than it was maybe their that uh, they were minority investors and or sort of, shall we say, promotional uh, eye candy vehicles. Uh, for that, right? Yeah, vehicles, that's right. Yeah, but, but, it, but it didn't change, to be honest, Tim, and we'll, we'll go far ahead and then come back, but it didn't change in the WUSA. The first women's league is, is that was, and John Hendricks from Discovery is a very nice man and a very smart individual. He's done very well for himself, Discovery Channel, et cetera, et cetera. He convinced his partners to be involved as owners in the WUSA uh, as the, you know, right after the 99, the famous and, and really successful 99 Women's World Cup in this country. He convinced a bunch of folks to be involved that were his cable television buddies. Some of them saw it as simply programming for their cable outlets. 
And I remember vividly having a conversation with one woman who was a senior person in a big cable company that's still around in this country. And she, she and her co-business people at that particular outlet, uh, which is, a, which is a, it's in the news today, happens to be headquartered in Philadelphia, so you can figure out who that is. And they thought that they were getting involved because of asset franchise appreciation. And they thought it was within three years they were going to see, help me, NFL-type numbers for their franchises. And I don't know what they were smoking, but that's just not the way it works. So that's part of the idea of, as well, back to your NESL days. You got And it runs again. Pro sports is a tough business. And you have, you have some people that are very good at it, like we were, in, in my opinion, at the Rowdies in Tampa. And and for a while, for a while, the the cosmos was Steve Ross, who who loved that whole glitz and glamour thing. But it still comes down to doing the nine to five or the six to six work every week, right? That you got to sell tickets and do the marketing and do all the other stuff. And some people did it, and some people didn't. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try. Perhaps one of those two or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. And. Back to our conversation.
How tough was it to sell uh, NASL soccer in Philadelphia when you were there in 78, 79? Well, it's, again, uh, you know, everybody likes to say that their market is the toughest. I don't believe in that, but certainly um, faced as I was as a young 20-whatever, I was 27-year-old PR person in the city of Philadelphia with, um, you know, the, the Eagles and Vermeil, the, uh, the Sixers and the Flyers and baseball Pete Rose had come uh, to the Phillies at that time, and they were very good. So you had a lot of competition for the sports dollars. And, you know, I don't think it's any different today, with all due respect, and I know them very well, I don't think it's any different today than with the Philadelphia Union MLS team is facing in a city with the Sixers doing what they did, the Eagles doing what they did, the Flyers making the playoffs. And so it's always, you know, you just got to fight through that and do in my opinion, what you do best and work hard at it. But in terms of uh, uh, working in that in that market, I'll give you one one example that I remember vividly. Is Bob Ellinger came to me one day and said, "We want to make an announcement this week." And of course, he he always thought of it as in those days we thought of it more as how it was going to play in the Inquirer and the Daily News, the two newspapers there. He said, "What day of the week should we do this announcement?" And I go, "I don't know." He said, "Well." Go find out what circulation rates are or what circulations are for every day in the week. And I go, why should I do that? And But it was a great training. Found out that, obviously, 50% of the people read a newspaper on Sunday, and the, the least amount of readership was Saturday, and the other strongest day of the week was the day the coupons were in the paper, Thursday, usually. So we made an announcement on Wednesday to be in the Thursday paper. And that's the kind of thing you learn, and maybe it was trial and error in those days, but some people had good good mentors like that, and some didn't. It uh, it felt to me that the uh, the Fury, um, uh, you know, in 79, I think, was the least attended team of the league, right? 5,000 plus. Uh, but it also, right, was, and it, the year before was uh, a little bit better, but not, not all. I mean, they were clearly near the bottom rungs of the, on the attendance front. Um, but I, I'm curious as to whether the the difficulty of selling within Philadelphia, given all the other things going on in, in the in the um, in the sports world around that time in Philadelphia. Uh, but also, it seems to me that uh, that just the team was uh, relatively subpar. I mean, it never had a winning record. Uh, it squeaked into the playoffs in '79. Another question I want to ask you because I got, I got to think it's somewhat memorable, right? Because uh, in '79, the team. Uh, posted a a ten and twenty record, and through the uh, interesting vari- uh, uh, variations of the uh, North American Soccer League uh, points system, uh, just eked into the playoffs and and knocked off the second best team in the first round of the playoffs, uh, the Houston Hurricane. Um, I, I, I'm just all that sounds really interesting to me. Yeah. So there's two anecdotes there. One is yes, we we did go to Houston, which was coached by Timmy Leakowski, who was. Uh, Longtime friend of mine, an All-American at Hartwick, and we beat them down there. I think it was one nothing. I don't remember the score. But Timo, post-game, wouldn't speak to me. And he and for months wouldn't speak to me about losing that game because we had no business winning, but we did, and we made the next round, et cetera, et cetera. The other one I remember is I almost got fired because, uh, yes, we made it on the last day of the season, a Jersey kid named Pat Fidelia scoring a goal. To, we won 3-2. I think it was in Montreal and made it literally on the last kick of the last game of the season to make the playoffs, squeaked in. And some guy, some general manager from the West Coast 
And in those days, we used telexes to communicate. He sent an all-league telex, telex out to everybody in the league saying, when, hey, somebody answer, when is Philadelphia's first playoff game? And I wrote him, I wrote him back. I should note that I was young and impetuous in those days. I wrote him back and I said, please send the date and time of your, of your first playoff game. Well, his team hadn't made the playoffs, so that rubbed him the wrong way and he went to the league office and I almost got fired for it. And bad idea, but I, it was, it felt good for about an hour, I can tell you, when somebody gives you grief for that because we just, we just went the way the rules were and we made the playoffs. Very interesting. Um, uh, so going from the Fury, I guess you thought that, uh, I, I mean, did you see, I mean, you left after the second year of the team, and then I guess they had one further season after that. Uh, did you see that it could be uh, successful in Philadelphia, or did, was it, uh, at what point did you kind of sort of, I mean, making the playoffs in that run certainly helped. I, I got to think the next season would have been uh, some momentum for that. Obviously, you left to go to Dallas after that, but um, it, it, it almost seems like it it almost went even further sideways the the following season, given uh, you know even lower attendance, uh, if that could be uh, achieved. Um, you know, did you sort of see the seed the seeds of uh, of the team not lasting much longer in that city, or was that just again in the moment, not sort of paying attention to that? No, it wasn't. It, that wasn't as much uh, for me personally, to be honest, as it was to be reunited with in in uh, in Dallas with. Uh, uh, Lamar Hunt, who I'll talk about in a second, and then and then Al Miller, who was the coach, and Francisco, again, two mentors of mine. Francisco was the player person, personnel director, and um, et cetera, et cetera. But that came about because when I worked for the Buccaneers and the Pro Bowl was in Tampa in February of 78 before it went to Hawaii for its long run and then came back, obviously, to Orlando or whatever the heck it is, but uh, there was a big party of all the NFL owners in that February of 78, which, I, which we as staff of the Buccaneers could go to. And standing by himself in the middle of the room, I went up and started talking to Lamar Hunt. Nobody was talking to him. And we talked soccer for literally the 25 or 20 minutes that I met with him. And literally, whatever that time frame is, a year and a half later, uh, my phone rings and it's Lamar Hunt. And he says, in, in Philadelphia, he says, Tom, I remember the conversation we had uh, at the resort about soccer. We need a PR guy. Would you be interested? <laughs> I'm like, Lamar Hunt remembers a conversation that he had with me. But as I found out over the next 35 years, that's the way the guy was. He was just one of the best human beings, probably the best human being I've ever met in terms of just being a quality human being. So that's how that started, really. It was nothing to do with what the what the future of the Fury was. And my wife was from Philly, so that didn't go over very big when we moved to Dallas. But it was really a case of just and, and I got a I got a salary increase, so that's another reason you move in, in our business or any business. And it was a chance to work with Al Miller and, and Francisco and they had an established pretty good team that only got a little bit better. Um and history, Rich, right? The tornado. Um, so let's talk about Mr. Hunt uh, and the tornado uh, specifically, because uh, I'm obviously curious about, you know, we had Kyle Rote uh, Jr. on our show. We've had um, uh, Bobby Moffitt. Uh, it's pretty clear that the tornado, uh, while never, uh, you know, a huge success uh, on the field. I mean, they, there was that chance in 73 to win the championship, which they lost to the Adams, uh, frankly, I think by everybody's surprise. Um, you know, but was always a solid, 
uh, club and a solid performer. Uh, maybe not necessarily gangbusters in the, on, in the, uh, in the stands, uh, not necessarily sort of a breakthrough on the national level. Um, but it arguably, uh, a, that, that sort of at least air of stability, uh, because of the, the, the fundamental belief that, uh, Lamar Hunt, uh, had from the earliest days about the future of the pro game in this, uh, in this country. And uh, I think, you know, uh, as long as he was sort of involved, uh, Dallas, to his uh, to his credit, would be part of that uh, of that uh, of that North American Soccer League. Um, maybe a few moments about Hunt, the tornado, and uh, sort of uh, its and his role in all of this. Well, there's so many positives to that, and you're 100 percent right. And and yes, they did win a tournament, a championship in '71, which at that time I think was the longest games ever played with Rochester. I think they went 170 minutes or something like that. But that core group of Kenny Cooper, Bobby Moffitt, Mike Renshaw, etc., old a lot of them English expats that went around the world on that famous round-the-world tour that they did as a Dallas Tornado team when the team first started. I, I, want, to uh, do, I want to do a separate episode on that one. I, I do know that somebody wrote a book on that, and, and that, that just seems to be a very interesting story for its own thing. So it's Oh, it's fabulous, yeah. the places they went and and the, and the experiences they had over five months, but the the positives are, and I don't, and there are other other examples of this in a lot of different places, Minnesota, San Jose, Seattle, that come to mind. But I'm not sure if, and I don't think you you make you keep a score on it, but I'm not sure there's another community or area in this country that benefited from a soccer standpoint and the grassroots standpoint of the work and the visits and the clinics and the camps and the various things that those uh, disciples, those prophets did uh, in their spare time in Dallas, Texas, than did the tornado. And yes, you had Lamar Hunt, who is, who is arguably, I think he's the greatest American sportsman. Again, I'm biased. Um, I, I knew him for 35 years and worked for him for whatever it is, seven, eight, nine. And there's not a better human being and another classier human being than I've ever met than that man. Uh, but uh, he's always a guy that, for whatever the, he, he never, he would never be a Steve Ross. Uh, I remember the shifting gears. I remember talking to Dick Vermeil before he went to the Chiefs, Lamar's NFL team, and asking him in those days, this is in the 80s now, uh, how come the Chiefs will never make it big? And he says, because Lamar is too cheap to pay assistance, good assistance, what they're worth. Now, that all changed when the, uh, they had some change in the in the boardroom at the Chiefs, not from Lamar, but their general manager, presidents, etc. But uh, Lamar always believed that you were always as strong as your weakest links, and he didn't want to, I think it was in his DNA, not to flaunt his economic power and so they never spent the the money that potentially that other teams did cosmos or minnesota with the 3m and general mills guys so that's part of it but in terms of the positivity and the i believe i could say with some degree of authority that i don't think there's any city or any area that benefited more from all the years of their work uh, I think Atlanta is another one. I think you're seeing the fruits finally of of what's happening in MLS in Atlanta with all the great work that the Chadwicks and those kinds of guys, David Chadwick, did in the Atlanta thing. And then lastly, I'll say that to the detriment and 
in yeah, all right, every market's the same, no market's different or better or worse, but in Dallas, that is a Cowboys team and a Cowboys country, first, second, third, and then you have college football, a great line about the two two different seasons of of football. There's, you know, football and spring football in uh, in college, but uh, that had a lot of effect on it. You're really fighting uphill. And thirdly is in the summertime, it like right now, it is really hot in Dallas, Texas. And we, we played in a variety of places. Lamar, I think his teams over the years played in at least five that I can think of off the top of my head. And when I was there, the big move was made to move from Ownby Stadium on the campus of SMU, his alma mater, which was an open air place. And we moved to Texas Stadium playing on turf. And it was, uh, I remember in 1980 living there, the temperature didn't go below 100 degrees for 24-7 for 41 consecutive days. And that's awful hard to get people to go out and sit uh, watching a game in those in those conditions, but that's no excuse. Now, had a good team that year, right? Uh, won the division and um, uh, won the first round of the playoffs and then and got uh, knocked off uh, somewhat dramatically uh, by the Cosmos uh, uh, later in that season. Um, yeah, I mean, you do mention the uh, the stadium history of that team, right? I think it's like six or seven, actually, stadiums. I mean, there's the old Turnpike right. Stadium. Starting with in the Cotton Bowl and Cotton Bowl. Places, so I, maybe uh, – so – what, what as far as you remember, what precipitated that move from from Ownby, which is arguably you know closer to the Dallas sort of core uh, downtown area, or at least uh, relatively close to uh, arguably a much more suburban and or metroplex ish uh, Texas Stadium? Was it the modern amenities? Was it the we need to upgrade our sort of thing? Was it Ownby Stadium too uh, narrow? Well, any ideas to why why that move? Because I could see the pluses and minuses of of making such a move. I think it was uh, first and second, Tim, and not much of the third. I don't think the field uh, width had anything to do with it. I think it was more that, yeah, centrally located, so let's draw from Fort Worth, the mid-cities, et cetera. And I think it was, hey, we're playing in the house that, that Tom Landry built with the hole in the roof, and people have a familiarity with it, and let's try to increase our visibility with that. And, you know, Lamar had... A number of general managers as well. All of them bring uh, a different perspective and a different approach to it. At the at the Ombi years, at least at the end, he had and he's still around. You should chase him, Dick Berg, who was in San Jose and then in Dallas. Maybe the P.T. Barnum of or Bill Veck of his time in in the North American Soccer League. He was the GM and no holes barred at Ownby. And yeah, they did pretty well, had a pretty good team with Jeff Bourne and some other players. Then uh, Al Miller went very German and had some German players playing at Texas Stadium. And Dick had left. Another guy came in who I work for, Kent Kramer. And people have different ideas. And uh, Lamar was very good about listening to other people and, and supporting his staff. And those decisions were made. And so off we go. Well, uh, but uh, so I guess I really want to get into the 1981 season, right? Because that's when the bottom kind of fell out. I mean, um, the tornado, uh, I think, only managed five wins in 81, uh, barely uh, reached 5,000 or so per game. Um, and at the end of the season, uh, I guess Hunt and team recognized or gave up or or had had enough, right? I guess I, based on my research, I think 
at the time they were sort of quoted something in, around, in the neighborhood of 15 to $20 million over the decade plus in losses. Um, can you give our audience a sense of sort of what the 1981 season was like and why this uh, longtime champion of the sport professionally in this country, um, I don't know, by all accounts, seems like he gave up or was pretty much done with the NAS. Well, there was a couple. There were a couple of things with Lamar, and then there were a, a whole bunch of other uh, more uh, not important but more integral to this discussion uh, that happened with the team. So first, from the from the Lamar Hunt side. Uh, and this is, you know, people can read their Wall Street journals and follow this. As you might remember, this is around the time where, and it wasn't Lamar, it was his two brothers, uh, William and, and Bunker, tried to corner the silver market in this country, and that caused their family uh, as a whole, a whole bunch of, of internal and external problems with the government and IRS, a bunch of things. Number two, Lamar, as a, as a, person involved in a whole bunch of different sports, including, and people always forget that he is still, his family, first Lamar and now his family, were the original investors and the original majority investors from 1967 in the Chicago Bulls. Lamar was very proud of the six rings that he had as that, as that owner and never met, never met in his entire life before he passed away, never met Michael Jordan had a bunch of chances and decided not to because he was a superstitious about it. So uh, Lamar's other business at that time was WCT, the tennis outfit. He was being sued by the pro council and the so-called other aspects of the men's professional game, which took up a lot of time, a lot of money. You referenced the 15 or 20 million, which is, that's a lot of money to anybody, but he lost every bit of twice that, if not three times that, in his time over about the identical period in, in men's professional tennis. So uh, those pressures weighed. Then on the, from, from my perspective as I remember, and I have a little bit of benefit of, of time, but uh, some of the details might be a little cloudy, but so there was another cha- uh, that change I talked about in terms of the, the uh, leadership of the team and uh, Coach Al Miller left he quit in the locker room the previous season after losing that crazy Cosmos uh, playoff uh, game. And uh, another guy took over who was the logical choice, nice man. I knew him for a long time, still good friends with him, um, who who had played for the team, and he was the assistant coach. Great num- Great story. Great number two, not sure how good a number one he was, and they didn't have a very good team, and there was friction between him and the general manager. So he got fired. They brought a, another guy in to be the coach, and it just continued to go south. And I, I don't know if it was as much as uh, characterized as Lamar, quote-unquote, throwing in the towel, but he had a chance, and what they eventually did, as I remember, um, was join forces and combine their teams uh, with the Tampa Bay team at that time and and the assets of the tornado and legalese and economics and I, I wasn't privileged to that but uh, they I think he thought that if he was going to at least downsize he could uh, be a part of arguably one of the better run or the most visible of the franchises in that league from 75 to 81 so and it was the short short lived because obviously it went out of business 
not soon after that. Well, it's also around the time that you kind of uh, uh, stepped away from soccer as well altogether. I, I'm sure. I mean, I know you were tangentially related during your WCT days. Uh, obviously, part of the sort of the Hunt orbit, and and obviously then brought sort of into the sort of U.S. Soccer Federation for for years uh, later worth uh, of work, right? But the the pro game, right? Um, certainly, uh, arguably, you got an early seat in the sort of maybe beginning of the end period of the North American Soccer League. And I, I'm, I'm really curious uh, to hear, say, in, the, in the, the years that sort of followed, certainly 84, 85 by that time, uh, now, I guess, firmly ensconced in the, uh, in the USSF and, and other uh, parts of, of the sort of broader soccer uh, hierarchy in this country. What was your assessment and or perception, and frankly, maybe gut feelings about uh, what ultimately became the demise of the professional league? And, and it, 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 I remember it very vividly as sort of a very dark period of time, right, where, you know, uh, having grown up and being entranced by this North American Soccer League, having it all basically go away, you kind of wonder what the hell the, 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 the future of the pro level of the sport was going to be in this country, right? Well, at the sport across the board, you're, it was a very dark period, as I think you've had some guests that talked about previously as well. It doesn't need me to amplify it, but uh, I mean, again, you're in the foxhole. You don't think about what the end of the war is going to be. All you want to do is get through that day or week or month. But uh, it wasn't that it wasn't that um, negative just for me. It was just the fact that the league goes out of business in '84. You have the, the, the that erstwhile attempt to get the the World Cup in 82 that wasn't well done. Uh, you have a number of other people dropping out as owners of the North American Soccer League at that time because they just didn't see the future of it. And, and there was other things happening uh, in their lives across the country. And from a national team standpoint, that's and I started working, as you referenced, a little bit with the Federation at that time, and I attended and worked at and my wife always said I had it different. I had it backwards. I would take vacations from Lamar to go work for the Olympic Games in '84 and do some other things. And she said to me one day, "You have this backwards. Would you please go work for those guys so we can take normal vacations with our kids?" And she was only half kidding, but there was some truth to it. But there was the the, the bad qualifying loss to Costa Rica, so we didn't qualify for '86, and it and there was no uh, big time. Uh, Division One professional outdoor soccer at that time, and it was it was a very dark period. And even though there were a core of us that loved the sport and just liked being involved and and followed the game internationally, it was a very difficult time across the board. And wondering whether there was going to be a, a renaissance at some time in our lifetime, because certainly in those days, you're 100 percent right. It was a very dark time. Yeah, but there were also some some flickers, right? Uh, whether it was the 1984 uh, soccer tournament part of the uh, the Olympics, right, and that massive crowd at the Rose Bowl um, in Los Angeles in Pasadena, uh, the um, you know the qualifying finally in '89, uh, the shot heard around the world in Trinidad and Tobago, and, and making on our own merits, right, the uh, the 1990 World Cup, the the reception of the actual hosting of that uh, 1994 World Cup, right? Uh, probably, I think it was a year earlier, back uh, in 88, 89-ish. Um, so the, the, it, it didn't die, right? It was sort of there. And, and, and our, you know, the idea that 
this sport would not sort of go away per se. Um, maybe you can give some uh, some thought as to the the mindset of folks that you were around in the federation at that time, uh, as well as perhaps the importance of uh, those events, uh, the the qualifying, uh, winning the opportunity to host, and what what I don't think is explored all that much, the sort of seeds of what is now Major League Soccer, right, which was part of the uh, legacy guarantee of winning that bid in the first place in 94. Right. There's, there's a whole bunch of history that's forgotten there, in my opinion, Tim. And, and let's talk a little bit about the thing that did flourish and, and really kept some of the flame alive. Okay, it wasn't outdoor soccer. It wasn't the rest of the world type soccer. But as you, as you know, the major indoor soccer league was really going strong at that time with St. Louis, Dallas, uh, and a bunch of different places. St. Louis is the one that comes to mind with the steamers. And then in, and certainly, uh, Dallas, the Dallas sidekicks were big. And I remember, and this is sort of the, the, the disdain that some of the leadership had. Uh, when I first started working for the Federation, one of the first trips I took, took was to take two senior executives from our Federation to a sold out reunion arena for a, Dallas Sidekicks, Tacoma Stars indoor playoff game. I think there were four or five members of the National Board of Directors um, of U.S. Soccer, the national governing body, who played in that game. It was it's in the top five athletic contests I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the 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 noise was incredible in that building, and Dallas won in overtime. But in in the middle of regulation, late in the game, tied. The two gentlemen with me leaned over to me and said, any time you want to leave, we can go. And I'm like, what? And I, again, being snotty Tom, I said, well, I drove, I have the keys. Can I strongly urge us to stay until this is over? Because it'll look really bad if you two guys leave before this game is over. So the indoor, the indoor league had, had a foothold and at least the ball was round. And, and people followed that. And then going forward, I'm going to insert a couple of things that, yes, 89 was big, 80, 89, 90, going to Italy, etc. But there were some things that were occurring over that time as well. Uh, we, Our team qualified for the Olympic Games, which, as you know, we haven't done the last, what is it, two quadrennials, which is a, a blot as well as it is for not qualifying for for Russia, but the 88 team in, in Korea did very, very well. Um, we were unlucky to lose to Argentina. We drew with the host country 0-0. We played true professionals in the Soviet Union and got spanked 4-2, and, and that was in 88. Also, the previous year, 87, we played in the Pan Am games, and all those to me, because I, I worked them all, all those experiences added to the player, the administrative, and the coaching acumen that we needed in, in 89-90 to go forward. We, we play in the Pan Am Games in Indianapolis, and if you look at the scoreline, it's 2 nothing. We lost to Argentina. We win that game. We go to the, to the next round. That game was 0-0 after 85 minutes, and I'm sitting... Uh, because if we had won, CBS and Brent Musburger was going to do the 
do the next game on TV as part of their, they had the rights to the Pan Am games. And I remember vividly sitting with Brent Musburger the entire game, explaining to him and telling him in the second half, Brent, this 0-0, this doesn't happen against Argentina. Then we gave up um, a penalty at 87, and they scored, in essence, the hockey-type empty netter at 90, and we lost 2 nothing. But it was really close, and that's what happens when you play those games. And we got better because of it. So there's a lot of history there, in my opinion, that adds to that whole time as we continue to grow towards 90 and then 94. How did you uh, get ensnared uh, into uh, the uh, beginning days of, uh, of Major League Soccer? You were uh, more of a, uh, uh, an independent running your own uh, firm and, and doing a lot of, of work with uh, lots of, of teams and leagues and federations and that kind of stuff at that point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, were you uh, part of some of the sort of preliminary uh, bricklaying, shall we say, for uh, the uh, pre and then earliest days of, uh, of Major League Soccer? Well, one of the great things that I was able to do, first of all, I was working for the Federation at the time in, the, in that time period in the 90s, which was a very busy and very fruitful time with the U.S. Cups that we had done, 92 and 93, with England and Brazil and all these teams coming here as, dry, as trials and dry runs. Um, we also had a, a, a very strong, obviously we had to, we had a very strong uh, friendly, international friendlies period of time, and I was working for the Federation. And, and I saw, I was lucky, I saw 26 of 52 games live in, and saw a game in every venue in 94. And, and so th- that added to it. But as I went around the country, one of my jobs or my primary job for 94, I didn't work for the organizing committee at the time, but I, my job through Hank Steinbrecher and Alan Rothenberg, the uh, secretary general and the president at that time, was to, uh, put games on, help put games on, stage games in these markets that were going to have World Cup games in a couple of years hence. So I got to know a lot of the people that were in place there, both at stadiums and at teams, and a lot of those guys flipped over, so to speak. Dan Flynn in Chicago became uh, obviously the Secretary General of U.S. Soccer, but he was in Chicago. There was Farouk Qureshi was in Orlando and then worked in Tampa, etc. So I got to know those folks, and then just you, you, it's like any other business, it's relationships, and I talked up. Uh, involvements and and got to do a lot of those things a lot of those games and got to know those folks and and were able to do a lot of things for those fledgling teams in those days how did you uh how did you get into um the uh, wusa we kind of hinted at it before but i I guess i want to sort of uh, segue into into that right because obviously major league soccer had uh, gotten off uh, to a pretty darn good start and uh, centralized ownership and 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 Clearly, things were, were sort of on the up and up, but um, obviously the 1999 uh, Women's World Cup and uh, and, and the sort of uh, sort of second shot heard around the world, in particular the uh, the famous sports bra and Brandy Chastain at the uh, at the final and the uh, in the penalty shootout and all that stuff, and a huge shot on the arm and, and momentum uh, for the women's game. Maybe you could give, and you had a ringside seat of this, so I, I'd really like to hear uh, your impressions of. Uh, the uh, the impetus and the excitement behind launching the uh, the women's professional league, that being the WUSA, circa 2000, uh, and maybe a little bit of sort of the uh, why perhaps it um, 
that, that enthusiasm sort of waned relatively quickly. And we mentioned money before, dot, dot, dot. Well, uh, you're right. You're right that, that one necessarily and for sure led to the other. The absolute captivation of this entire country with the girls of summer 1999. And it was a fabulous time. I think I knew that it had arrived when I was at a game on the on a World Cup game on the West Coast. I can't remember. I think I was going from L.A. to San Jose or vice versa. And I was lucky enough because uh, American Airlines was a sponsor at that time, although I paid for it. Big, big notice. I paid for it. I upgraded myself uh, to first class. And every one of the men sitting in first class of that flight the morning after we had won the semifinal game. So it had to be coming from San Jose to L.A. Every one of them was reading the San Jose Mercury or the San Francisco Examiner. And every one of them was talking to their seatmate about the Women's World Cup team. That's when I knew that we had made it, quote unquote, as as an event in this country when those guys were talking about it. And and certainly that that euphoria, that exposure, the, the, the quality which still exists of the personalities of that time, Brandy, Mia, uh, um, all of them, Carla Overbeck, uh, uh, Brianna Scurry. So those they were quality people, quality times, and, and that led to folks saying, hey, maybe we can make a pro game out of this. Uh, Tony DiCicco was the obvious choice, or at least somebody who who said that he wanted to be part of that leadership. And John Hendricks again, and the other folks that were involved, uh, agreed, said that and knew that Tony was one of the folks that should be involved. Tony was the the commissioner, so to speak, on the good side. It was also his idea, and he pushed for it very hard, just like they. The administrators and Alan Rothenberg and Marla Messing had done so during 99, pushed for, as you know, playing in big stadiums, Stanford Stadium, uh, the Rose Bowl, which three years before you'd have been shot for saying we should do that. But it turned out to be the right answer and the right thing, and the crowds were big and vociferous and enthusiastic, and it exposed not only women, but but who hadn't been to many games before, and boys to the to the to the international game and the, the the sphere of that. So then Tony was the the uh, the leader of that and asked me. I was working for the federation and asked me if I would be interested in moving from Chicago to New York and work as the startup for the WUSA. I liked doing different things to my wife's and family's detriment because we moved again. But uh, I think that that Tony was the right guy, and certainly we harnessed or used that enthusiasm for 99 going forward for WUSA, pregnant pause. Then I think, and and I could be part of that same group of people, but they really didn't know how to market the sport and really didn't. And sport, sport marketing, to me, it's grunt work. It, the successful folks are the people, in my opinion, that do the simple things and the mundane things over and and do it right over and over and over again. And a lot of those folks, in my opinion, um, they thought it was just fun and games. I remember going to a general manager's meeting before the first season, and they were all the folks in the room were all laughing and 
and uh, having a good time and talking about the old days in 99. And I just needed, of course, I was the, 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 the cold water, I guess, at times. And I said, folks, let me just say something here. A year from now, when one of your teams doesn't make the playoffs, some of you people will not be in this room. That's what pro sports is about. It it takes scores and keeps track of things pretty quickly and pretty effectively. And whether I had an impact on them or not, I don't know, but I was probably too much of a naysayer, only that it's really to me that a lot of those folks didn't know how to promote what they had. Well, I mean, you're, talking about, you're also talking about a sizable, I mean, it, it would seem on paper, right, you know, having $5 million each from Time Warner Cable, back when it existed, Cox Enterprises and Cox Communications, uh, Comcast, uh, you know, the big bucks of, of John Hendricks uh, and Amos Hostetler, Stetter. I mean, you've got, um, uh, you know, you could not have, at media, right, uh, Turner, uh it seems like you could not have had a better foundation uh, to launch uh, with in earnest, right? A uh, a successful professional league. The, the 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 players that were there were not only just the top women of the U.S. game, but the top women of the on the world stage as well. And this was literally, and and maybe even more interestingly, right? So I think one thing that's kind of lost in all this, right? The one thing about soccer in this country professionally. Um, you know, unlike most of the other professional league sports in this country, right? Where is soccer is is not either arrogantly or or actually uh, the top uh, sport, and nor is it the top league uh, in the world, like it is with all the other sports. Obviously, baseball and and, pro, and uh, American football, et cetera, right? Um, but you can't, you know, this was actually an attempt and, a, and, a, and an opportunity, uh, literally, uh, to create the best world league for women's soccer based in the United States, it seemed. And I'm going to make a statement to you that I've talked to. I just saw somebody the other day that was an assistant coach in, in one of those teams in that first year. And, hey, I'm not a technical guy. I'm an ops guy and a PR guy. But everybody, I think, that paid attention to that league would tell you that from a quality standpoint, I'm not taking anything away from the current NWSL Teams and folks, a couple of them are still involved from when they were involved in the WUSA, Tommy Sermani, etc., ex-national team coach of this, this country in Australia. But I would submit to you that the quality of the players in that first and second years was is better still than anything that's uh, been put together in the in the rest of the world or here since that time. Now, that costs money, and maybe we and I include myself in the we, maybe the we didn't do a good job of of keeping the two sides of the ledger balanced, what we spent and what we took in. Uh, WAGs have said to me over the years, oh, my God, $60 million. How could you have spent that much? And my typical time retort sometimes is, how much should it have cost? When you start a new professional American gridiron league, as they're trying to do again, come back to me and tell me what those guys are going to spend to start that in competition with the NFL. It isn't cheap, and maybe we spent money we shouldn't have, but I, I would tell you that from a product standpoint, it was certainly 
the equal, if not better, than anything that's been seen before. Uh, I, I'll give you one example of, and uh, I won't ref, I won't tell you who the owner was, but a number of years after the demise of the WUSA, uh, I was in a group with this particular original owner, and he said, you know, maybe I'd have been better off hiring Christine Lilly uh, and paying her a million dollars or five million dollars to come to my house twice a week instead of what he spent uh, and lost uh, with the WUSA. But, um, hey, it maybe it was before its time and didn't do a lot of things right, but uh, we have to be blamed for not having all of us, the right people at the right place, pulling the oars in the right direction and having everything fall into place. But it, I don't think it was because of the lack of the abilities of the players. I think they were spectacular. All right, so maybe we, we, as we round up here, uh, you know, y y there was probably nobody uh, on the the PR side of of uh, of this of the pro soccer game in the United States that's uh, sort of had more of a bird's eye view uh, of the sport and its uh, evolution over the last uh, 30, 40 years than 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 Tom Meredith. Um, uh, give us some sense of, given all of that history, given all that sort of in the trenches and sort of seeing uh, the good, the bad, the sideways, the ugly. Um, I, I'm really curious to hear, I think our audience would be too, as to where sort of you see uh, the current state of, of the professional game in this country, uh, certainly uh, Major League Soccer, but also the soccer pyramid that uh, seems to be uh, growing. Uh, the state, though, of, of the openness or, or maybe lack thereof, uh, the, what, what of the next generation of the NASL, what of the USL, uh, what of the world stage? I mean, 2026. Uh, is it good? Is it is it upwards from here? Is it challenged? Uh, does it uh, potentially uh, uh, not survive, let's say, an economic downturn? Uh, have we reached too many teams a la the old NASL again? I'm really curious to just hear sort of your general assessment of where sort of the state of the pro game is here in this country uh, from your perspective. Well, I'm, it, I'm going to try to do it in less than 3,000 words because that's a, that's a big topic. No, we're, but, this, the podcasts allow the, for lots of lengthy explanations, so, so don't, yeah, don't the, be shy. The, no, the short, the short answer is I am very, very optimistic, but we, have, we are in challenging times. The sport is challenged, and it's challenged every day. But first, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, it's like what's uh, Valdano say, you know, where, where where you are, where you want to be, and how do you get there type of a thing. It's every day there's going to be challenges. I have a little bit different view than Dan Flynn, for example, who came out recently on the, the uh, day of the announcement of 2026 coming here, that we have to get our team right and have to get the, get the on-field product right. And I believe as a guy that's never played the game, I'm a book-learned soccer guy, I believe that the other the other parts of it are equally important. And, you know, the next time you see a soccer person or a professed soccer person, and we have garnered and, and attracted 50 times what we, in terms of the people that are watching, and I don't usually, I don't necessarily use Nielsen ratings as a, as a um, barometer of how much we've impacted the, the, the lives of Americans. I tell my, my friends from across the different ponds all the time, anybody that says that soccer, football, is not part of the, pro, uh, the fabric of American life is not paying attention, 
has never been here and doesn't know and hasn't traveled around the country and seen the impact of kids playing. But it's not just kids playing. Um, I went to a Division II women's game here in Connecticut where I live. I really like watching this team play. And I was sitting with a gal who's the regional referee coordinator for, uh, she works for a state association, but she also works on the referee inside, former FIFA referee on the women's side, refereed in the WUSA. And, and we have this unbelievable proliferation of teams and leagues and first, second, third. I'm not even going to get into the pro-rel thing because I personally don't think that's ever going to happen in terms of the current uh, MLS structure. I just don't think those those owners are going to go for it, that single entity thing. So I, I don't even get involved in that. But when I was talking to her about what's going on, it's more a question of, uh, of where are the coaches? I mean, we, we do a great job with the players and the coaches. We're talking about getting all these coaches involved and all these pathways. But what about the administrators, which is a, a link that we don't talk about too much, and I've referenced a number of times over this conversation about the lack of foresight, ability, history, context of those folks. And what about referees? What are we doing to attract people? Both my kids refereed when I was working for the Federation in Chicago. And both of them came home the first Saturday they worked and said, Dad, please don't make me do that again because of the way parents acted, etc. And that's, a, that's the 800-pound gorilla in this country. But today's referees, and we have a hard time attracting them, we have a hard, a hard time keeping them, and so there's an attrition rate there. As an aside, and it's happening, and I'm really interested to see this modern development, I always said, Tim, that my sport, my sport of choice, has not arrived in this country like it has in, in England and South America and any other place on the planet until you can bet on a soccer game, until I can open my paper today, this morning, and see that Red Bull is favored over Atlanta. Now, I, I think it's, hap- it's going to happen because of this proliferation of the sports betting situation that's happening right now. I don't think anybody knows where it's going to end up. But I've always felt that that aspect of it would be the final brick on the wall of our sport making it. But there's a context. We referenced it on the beginning of the conversation. That, And, I'm again, I'm a cliché guy. Those that do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And um, I can't tell you, well, I'll, I'll make a wager. I'll, I'll ask somebody, because I won't be involved in it, but I'll ask the folks that are going to be involved in the, the creation and the staging of 2026. The 1994 folks spent a lot of time and a lot of energy putting books together that I don't believe have ever been seen about what was the reasons, what were the success uh, uh, parameters and how they did certain things for the, whatever it is, six years from 88 to 94. And they spent a lot of time on it. How many, just I'd like to ask those guys on July 4th, 2026, how many of them read that document? Now, maybe there was nothing in there 
that was germane. But from a context standpoint, you referenced it earlier. Um, anybody that's involved in the game, and I'm, I'm as, as involved or as guilty, I should say, as anybody, I remember Al Miller and Seamus Mallon and Jim Carvelis. Those guys are important to me. Phil Woosnam. And the average person today doesn't have any idea the sacrifices. Referees. I mean, a guy like Gino Diapolito, who did a lot of Cosmos games in front of 70,000 people, was as good a referee, in my opinion, as the folks working today. And very few people know that guy. He was a simple carpenter who lived in Yonkers and worked on the building of the Verrazano Bridge. And he would leave early, ask his foreman, can I leave early? i got to go do a soccer game. And all of his buddies would laugh at him, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then three hours later, he's getting yelled at by Canalia in front of 70,000 people when his average guys didn't know it. Those guys and gals built this, built this game, and I think there's something to be said for at least asking them their opinions. Um, and I don't get asked very often. I appreciate the opportunity to spout a little bit with you. But um, I, I, back to your original question and my uh, beginning of my answer, I'm very enthused. I think there's a context. We can never think that we've made it. I think we have to continue to do the simple stuff. I think we have to, uh, everybody has to do it their part. And and I think that the game is the most important thing. And then and then to, in our own ways, trying to correct some of the things that we've seen. And again, they're little things, but I believe the educational part, in terms of, I I've already written the the email and the letters. When I see when I see somebody say, well, uh, earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal, uh, they did this great two-page spread of the. The World Cup, really well done. That wouldn't have happened when I started, right? And they did a synopsis of every team. And you go down, and I read them, and it says, England, Poland, inventor of the game. That's not true. They didn't invent the game. They promulgated and codified the rules at Freemason's Tavern in 1863. But they didn't invent the game. Nobody knows who invented the game. They think the Chinese played a game very similar to what soccer is today in, in 3,000 years ago. It's not the World Series. It's not the World – the Eagles did not win a world championship. And until we get – and I think it's coming, but until we get more – and I'm on a soapbox, I'm sorry – but until we get more and more people that understands the internationalness of the game and what it means when women can't go to a game in Iran – You've seen the signs at this World Cup uh, that that promotes that, et cetera, et cetera. Until they understand how it fits into the fabric of everybody's life and the rest of the world, we're all lamenting the fact that the U.S. men didn't make the World Cup, and it's a disaster. I don't see it that way because the Italians did it or didn't make it, and I don't think it's going to be – uh, sir, it's a short-term disaster for them. They're still arguing about who the president's going to be or their federation, et cetera, et cetera. But I, but I don't think that it's the death knell that some short-term apologists make 
for my sport. Uh, the sport's healthy. It's growing. We've got to keep doing what we're doing and, and having, a, having a big tent and let everybody in and listen to everybody. Uh, and lastly, I would say that most of the time, and again, I'm probably in the minority as well, most of the time, and I, and I answered somebody who wrote me the other day and asked me this question, um, most of the time I believe the successful things in this country, or in sport at least, are in business. I mean, you could argue the success of Jack Welch at GE or Iacocca at Chrysler, and certainly in sport, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a dictator uh, or a benign dictator, but you can't argue against the success of Pete Rozelle at the NFL, uh, David Stern at the NBA, etc. And I think that it's very hard to get a consensus today. It's very hard to get people to agree on a, a, a way forward that potentially um, 49.9% of them don't want to go. And then if if the 50.1% wins or wins the argument that day, the 49.9 say, oh, I'm not going to be involved anymore. It's it's a long-term thing. So the sport's the most important thing. The 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 grace of the game, uh, what the game teaches, and and what the end results are. Not only just winning the World Cup, but but just putting on something and showing the rest of the world that that this country has joined the rest of the world from its sporting standpoint, which. I still think we have a long, um, some way to go before we can say we've graduated from that master class, in my opinion, anyway. Well, look, that's spoken like as someone with a true understanding uh, and uh, and and true uh, experiences in the game, and and uh, it, this is partially why we do these uh, these conversations because, uh, to your point, you know, history uh, is uh, uh, you know part of uh, of the human condition. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to sort of see as generations sort of continue to unfold, uh, some of the problems looked upon as uh, being sort of new and, and unforeseen. And, and all you have to do is look back a generation or two and sort of see some of the same uh, issues and perhaps how uh, those were successfully or unsuccessfully tackled uh, in the past. And um, look, I also think a couple of things. So number one, you know, 2026, right, is a uh, is an amazing uh, not only jolt to uh the system and a reinvigoration, I guess, given uh, sort of the uh, the divots that uh, we've experienced in the last uh, you know eighteen to twenty four months in this uh, in this country with regards to the to our, to our success on the world stage, uh, but it's also a, it's also a guidepost. It's a it's a mile marker. It's something to shoot for uh, on a number of different fronts. And frankly, I, I'll put words in your mouth, or at least I'll claim them as mine. So I'll get on my soapbox <laughs> for a second. Um, you know, I'm actually very intrigued. Uh, and I think the timing now even makes even more uh, interesting uh, fodder of the reboot of this uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame in uh, in Frisco, Texas, which, as you know, is uh, is uh, relaunching in earnest in September. Um, but it feels to me right uh, after a lengthy absence, um, it is a, it is a supreme opportunity to uh, uh, entered, re-energize and, uh, and, and full bore go into, uh, all of these various, I don't even call them nooks and crannies. Let's call them tributaries of history, um, on a more formal and sustained and visible basis, uh, that for whatever reasons are not, uh, not only celebrated, but at least remembered, right? I mean, we've talked to people like, uh, Doug Verb and, uh, 
and Mark Manchel, for example, about the MISL, right? I mean, the major indoor soccer league, whether today's outdoor or the USSF or, or whatever folks, you know, want to or don't want to recognize it. The reality is that the, few, the the pro sport in this country was largely dominated by the indoor game in much of the 1980s. And, and to ignore that or uh, not remember that, uh, you know, is, I think, a, an injustice. I, I think we talk about broadcasting, right, which seems to be a silly sort of little separate thing here. But, but it's important because, you know, it does, it goes back into the history, like the 1960s, you know, where are those tapes of the CBS games and stuff? And, and 19, 1966, right, which is a World Cup thing that kind of uh, reintroduced the sport on the world stage to this country. I mean, these are all things, you know, what of Fernando, uh, uh, Francisco Marcos, right? I mean, the USL or the US, USISL or the Sizzle or all these sort of right. little leagues and, and acronyms that, that we can't even remember anymore. Without those grassroots efforts of his and others, uh, a lot of the stuff that we, I think, relatively... Uh, uh, benignly argue about right a pro rel and i mean we've, we've got a huge uh, infrastructure now that uh you know you couldn't even imagine 10 20 years ago i, I just uh, my only thought is that is this is that that a a, a true robust open and uh, insightful soccer hall of fame uh and and a commitment or recommitment to to your point earlier the very deep and vast history of this sport i mean the old american soccer league and, and all its permutations what what if even even the professional version of it in in the 70s and, and, and early 80s right i mean there's a lot of quality players there but you know people ignore that or have forgotten it because the nasl was so big and i these are all things that to me seem very timely given a another a nice eight-year window where the world stage will be focusing its attention on this country and this uh, continent again um, so let, let me do let me do a real quick yeah, let me do a real quick response. I'll try to because you hit a lot of them, and I'll try to do it in reverse order. So the first thing is you're right about the old ASL. How many people, for example, have been to Boston Common in in Boston, Massachusetts, and gone to the obelisk? There's an obelisk. There's a statue there that highlights the fact that there was a club called the Oneida Football Club that played soccer. I have a picture in my house here that Lamar Hunt had hanging the original, he had the original, I have a copy of it, of, of Union soldiers playing soccer at parade from Harper's Weekly in 1862. I have that picture. So you go to the Boston Common today, there's an obelisk talking about the Oneida Football Club that was undefeated and unscored upon playing their games from 1862 to 1865 on Boston Common, part of the history. I will say to you about the, the Hall of Fame, and of course I was living in Oneana, being a part of that scene, uh, working for the newspaper. I was very proud to be involved in the early machinations of the Hall of Fame when it was just the thoughts of a, a bunch of different people uh, there. Uh, in terms of because of the strength of the two programs, Hartwick and Oneana State, and then we got the building there, etc. So I was part of that, and sad to see it go, but economics. The, the museum business is a tough business. Let me just tell your, uh, our listeners here, that a fact of life in the, in the museum business, which is, is difficult at best today. And this is, this is true. If it wasn't for a lady named Jane Clark, who is part of uh, a big fortune in Cooperstown, New York, Major League Baseball does not financially support the Baseball Hall of Fame, the oldest and best known of our halls of fame. And Jane Clark writes a big, 
big check every year to cover that shortfall. And by the way, the president of the Hall of Fame is a guy named Jeff Idelson, who was Jim Trecker's number two for the World Cup in PR. So he's a soccer guy. The Football Hall of Fame almost went out of business in Canton, Ohio a couple of years ago. The biggest moneymaker they have is when the two NFL teams play a preseason game there. You might remember, I don't know how many years ago, it is now five, seven, where they had a major rainstorm and the game got washed out. That almost bankrupt the Football Hall of Fame, which the NFL, a bazillion-dollar business, doesn't give a dime in support to. So, And the viewer... Uh, interest of kids and attendees who are going to go to this Hall of Fame have changed over the years. I'm I'm an old timer. I love <laughs> I love um, looking at memorabilia. I've given a lot of stuff from my collection because what am I going to do with it? Uh, I've sent them a lot of stuff. Uh, insert. There's somebody who. Uh, I know has been involved in, and maybe they were four steps removed from that uh, recent work on the Hall of Fame, but it goes back to my original point about geography and knowledge. So they were writing uh, a cut line for a, a, a piece of memorabilia, which happened to be, I think it's Frankie Borgi or Charlie Colombo, one of the two guys from 1950. I can never keep them straight who wore gloves, welder's gloves, not the goalkeeper, but this guy wore gloves when he played on the field in the 50s. And they had a, they have a pair of his gloves. And the cut line reads, these are the gloves that Charlie Colombo wore when he played in the USA's one nothing win over Great Britain in the 1950 World Cup. Now, you just can't make a mistake like that. It's not Great Britain, it's the England, it's England, right, etc. So, it, it, those kinds of things, we still have miles to go, and and you're right about Francisco, I'll just put it in simple terms, and you, we should talk to him someday. Francisco, regularly, or over his career, uh, and didn't, didn't chase the, the Division One. he did the Division Twos and Threes. How about a guy that has talked to 150 round numbers. Pick a number, 100, 120, 150. He's talked to 150 people in this country and says, join me on this crusade, throw some money in the pot here. I'm in charge, but you can be part of this league or that league, women's league, W league, w, PDL, whatever. And he did that for 25 years, and now it's uh, the USL and his... his uh, college classmate Alec Papadakis is now running it. So those kind of guys deserve some some credit and somebody should ask them a question here and there about how did it happen in those days and maybe maybe you learn something. Okay, there it is, our chat with uh, Tom Meredith, one of the uh, true unsung uh, heroes of uh, of pro sports in this country over the last 30-plus years, and in particular the sport of soccer. And we'd even talk about some of the other exploits uh, that Tom uh, had in his career, including, by the way, being the PR guy for the uh, very woeful Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, in their first two years of existence in the NFL. Uh, I'm sure another story for another day. But uh, again, uh, you know, people like Tom are... Uh, to be not only remembered, but also celebrated for 
frankly, doing a lot of the work in the trenches uh, during the, you know, certainly fun and uh, frivolity-filled times of, of soccer uh, when it was sort of fledgling and uh, and choppy and, uh, and exciting, but yet not necessarily guaranteed in terms of success. You know, I, there are people like Tom who are, um, uh, frankly, instrumental uh, in uh, not only keeping the, uh, the history uh, of this sport alive, but its future as well. Uh, and, I, you know, I mean it when I say things like the National Soccer Hall of Fame coming back online in, uh, in October uh, down in Frisco, Texas. It's New Digs, which is uh, a hugely exciting uh, event uh, to come. Uh, it's also an, an excellent opportunity uh, to uh, go deeper and more broadly uh, into the history of the sport beyond what it was even before it left uh, the wilds of Anianta, New York um, and went sort of into hiding for a couple of years. Uh, there are things like the MISL and indoor soccer uh, that have been, frankly, ignored or not sort of given its due uh, because it was and is part of the uh, the history of the sport and actually maybe part of its future as well if futsal, for example, comes back as a pro sport in a couple of years. Uh, you know, we talk about broadcasting, right? So uh, in the case of uh, soccer, you have a, a ton of folks, whether it's Bob Carpenter or Vern Lundquist or uh, Al Troutwick and uh, JP Della Camera. And we just got a whole bunch of folks who have been uh, part of uh, the uh, the television and radio landscape who have gone on to sort of uh, higher perches, shall we say, in uh, in all of sports that uh, either got their start or, uh, you know, were very instrumental in being part of, uh, maybe even still part of uh, the soccer broadcasting landscape. And that too should be celebrated and, and remembered and, and gone a little bit more deeply into. So, and by the way, that's not just for soccer. Let's be frank. Uh, you know, we talked about all of our past episodes and things like the ABA, um, in, in basketball and the WHA and hockey. And, you know, these are all, you know, these things, these leagues, these teams, uh, the, the, some and the events behind and, and during some of these things may not be around anymore, but the reality is they're all part of the history. They're all part of the fabric of what we know now today are as the pro sports that we know and love. And uh, I'm not saying that everything is uh, worth remembering and, and, uh, frankly, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, maybe swept under the rug a bit, perhaps. But, but uh, you know, again, those who ignore history are are doomed to repeat it. And, um, you know, we think very seriously about, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, we, we treat as frivolity here on this show, but uh, are actually very, very important to the uh, ongoing nature uh, and uh, and storylines of, of the sports that we know and love. So if anything on this show, besides keeping you entertained and, and staving off boredom for a couple of hours uh, each week, uh, we at least uh, uh, maybe have a, a raison d'etre for doing some of this stuff, and that's uh, to keep sort of history alive, especially that that which has been uh, largely ignored or forgotten uh, as uh, leagues and teams have uh, come and gone, and that's why we're here. Uh, so thank you so much for listening this far. We want to thank our friends at Podfly Productions, in particular, The Good Doctor. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. I certainly can't. Uh, his name is Jerry Payne, The Good Doctor, and uh, without him, uh, I would not be able to uh, bring you these shows every week. So thank you, Jerry, for putting all these pieces together. Uh, and of course, make sure you go to goodseatstillavailable.com. Check us out. All our social feeds are there at Good Seat Still. That's on Twitter. Good Seat Still available on uh, Instagram. And of course, on uh, on Facebook, you've got a, a page devoted to us as well. Uh, we thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, until then, enjoy the World Cup and we'll see you soon.